0: Welcome to Freightonomics, uh, the show where we combine freight market intelligence data with that macroeconomic uh, environment to give a big picture of really what's going on uh, that's in fact uh, in, impacting you and the transportation sector uh, or anybody in supply chain. Supply chain, of course, becoming increasingly a uh, hot button topic here over the last 13 months, if not more, Anthony Smith. I'm Zach Strickland, Director of Freight Market Intelligence here at FreightWaves. Anthony Smith, Lead Economist uh, here, and uh, you know, Anthony, it's we're 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 in the midst of peak season, and you know, it's not it's not feeling or looking so much like it's that different than what we've seen over the last year or so, and we're going to bring on a guy that we haven't had on, and he used to be like the. <laughs> co-host really. Yeah. Uh with us in the early days, uh Zach, Dr. Zach Rogers is going to join us a little bit later to discuss some of the latest LMI readings. Of course, the LMI logistics managers index it measures everything in the log- logistics space. It's kind of like the uh, the PMI, the purchasing managers index, but for logistics and transportation. Uh so we're going to talk about the latest results and what he's seeing there. We just got November's results in and other than that, we
1: still got a pretty
0: a lot to talk about today. Hour-long show. We're back to the hour. Yeah,
1: I mean, we are reunited once at <laughs> last with Dr. Zach Rogers, and when we're doing that, I mean, 30 minutes just isn't enough. It's because not. there is <laughs> too much good conversation gets cut off, and we really need to kind of make up for old, a lot of times lost. So exactly. we need to have him on. We're going to get to him in just a few moments here. But without that, Zach, we got to get into our first segment. Yeah. Let's get into the first segment,
0: which is going to be the news because we got a lot of news to cover today. Uh, memes, I couldn't find one that was well, one clean enough and two relevant to what we're talking about. But uh, y'all, y'all nasty out there right now, so it's, uh, we're going to go right into the news uh, this week. And you know, I picked out some of these as some of my favorites. You know, I love the finance stuff. Uh, Old Dominion, this latest one here. Old Dominion uh, sends out intermediate updates. Uh, the LTL sector likes to do this to give their investors a little bit of a heads up of what's going on. Why wouldn't they at this point in time? Uh, Old Dominion, of course, gives a Q4 update, leads the pack. Uh, you can check this article out on FreightWaves.com, of course. Um, and talks about how, basically, they're seeing a little bit of e- They saw a little bit of easing uh, sequentially from October in terms of year-over-year gains. Uh, but still... Extremely strong uh, results thus far. Uh, if we pull up this chart, that uh, kind of uh, correlates with this. This is our contract rates for LTL, and it shows about a 13% increase in the average revenue per hundred weight uh, of a lot of our contract data. Of course, coming from a big uh, invoice auditing uh, group of data here and. Old Dominion reported 16%. (laughs) So their revenue per hundredweight went up 16% year over year in November. We're reporting around a 13% at the beginning of the month. And you can see there was a little bit of slight easing off of October in our data as well. So, I, I mean, this is the LTL sector, of course, extremely popular right now. Final mile deliveries, their networks are extremely well set up for you know, distribution, uh, you know, long haul into short haul translation type thing, something that e-commerce really drives a lot of. And of course, not having a full truckload. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, That's what LTL, less than truckload is, for those of you that may or may not know. And I think this is a, uh, you know, I think this is a sign, this sector is probably gonna be relatively strong because it's not quite as seasonal as the truckload side is. LTL is typically more uh, consistent volume uh, coming out not as volatile of a sector as the truckload sector is. So I think they're, they're probably feeling pretty good now that they've had pretty good results from October, November, and these are sh- huge year-over-year gains, uh,
1: totally. Yeah, and I think this brings into a good point of the trend that we're seeing right now, just with Old Dominion, but it kind of talks into what we have been seeing throughout the industry, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, and some of our internal index indices and sonar, but also talking about some of our expectations for 2022, mm-hmm. that for a lot of segments it's going to be continued growth. I mean, like you said earlier today, n- maybe not moving at 100 miles per hour, but maybe 95. Just a slight tick down, but <laughs> that momentum is going to carry us quite a ways, I think into mid 2022 for sure, but yeah. um, I mean, there is some diminished speed, but that doesn't mean that we're not still flying down the road right, right now. Exactly. And and you know, it, it's
0: I think that that's why Night Swift bought, <laughs> it, you know, they made the investment and in, uh, ARC Vest there and uh, not ARC Vest, um, AAA Cooper. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the the, the ARC Vest was in the article, got a little confused there, but they also had some intermediate reportings that were relatively strong as well. Uh, interestingly enough, the tonnage up, but not in direct proportion with the revenue. Uh, the revenue grew faster. And of course, rate increases help explain a lot of that as well. and a little bit of commodity uh, change there. The the less dense freight, that retail freight, the fluffy freight, as we used to call it, yeah. gets charged a little bit more uh, than that dense you know, industrial-type freight. Those automotive parts, machinery, and things like that, all very dense uh, freight. So it does have an impact on those numbers. Um, definitely check that article out. The next one, though, uh, unprecedented import volumes prop- propels South Carolina ports to all-time record. So... South Carolina ports handled 250,711 TUs in November uh, at the Wando Welch, North Charleston, and Hugh K. Leatherman terminals at the Port of Charleston. The South Carolina Ports Authority said the volume is 21% higher than November of 2020. Now, I've got another chart here, uh, another sonar chart here for our customs data that really illustrates that this is, this is basically the amount of shipments that are clearing uh, the ports of the port of Charleston, right there uh, in November, and you could see this is actually a pretty big jump. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not just breaking trend, but it's it's really you know, and I and there may be something to that dip in October uh, that's translating forward into November. So I'm going to be curious to see what happens here in the coming months uh, with this terminal. But I think the big takeaway here is that shippers are trying to pull as much freight into the United States, trying to bypass that. Port of Los Angeles, Long Beach, congestion uh, a lot. And of course, Charleston being outside of that. uh, The infrastructure, though, to change your port of entry in the United States, very difficult to do. So this is somewhat surprising to see this amount of growth this quick in one of these, I don't want to call it small ports, but it's a smaller port complex in the United States.
1: Yeah. So that was going to be my next question is talking about the infrastructure and the capacity to really have these types of volumes. So we always hear about, you know, Mm -hmm. hey, there are other ports throughout on the East Coast um, that we could kind of go through, but really kind of looking at those ports or the infrastructure there compared to what we see on the West Coast, it's kind of like, I don't wanna say it's the same ratio, but like comparing, um, you know, China's manufacturing capabilities to maybe some parts of Southeast Asia. Like, yeah, there is quite a bit there, but that is just such a massive powerhouse and infrastructure in comparison and so like you said exactly. it's going to take some time to build that out but it's impressive to see that growth nonetheless
0: yeah everybody kind of i think you know you, you don't go and it, every port isn't a carbon copy of the other port yeah. there's all sorts of other things going on there you know rail heads uh rail capacity storage facilities there's dc's positioned outside a lot of these places and you know you can't just pr- pull these up overnight and all of a sudden your supply chain is is just as effective coming in through the East Coast as it was on the West Coast. And, you know, we talked about this earlier. We're Long Beach, expecting to get a pretty big boost or bump in overall inbound volumes here in the coming month. And that's on the tail, like, it's not like it's been slow. (laughs) You know? So people are not necessarily, they don't have the ability to just shift all of a sudden into other ports out of nowhere, even though I think some of these ports are getting some overflow, uh, we're still not at that point where we can say, okay, consistently, Porter Charleston, expect to just blow up all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> know what I'm yeah. saying? Also, for those that you, I'm looking down from time to time, Zach, you know why? Trying to read, get up on the news. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Okay. <laughs> so I'm on LinkedIn. You see me looking down, I'm not being rude. I'm lo- on LinkedIn. So if you join, want to join into the conversation, you can send a message here in the chat for sure. Uh, big shout out to Elijah Hamlet from Kansas City and Morgan Buckley. Thanks for tuning in if you are indeed watching on this Thursday afternoon, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to one o'clock. So just want to give a quick shout out there. So if you hear anything throughout this conversation that you want to chime in on, give an opinion, feel free to use that.
0: Yeah, exactly. So
1: this next story,
0: this is probably one of the biggest (laughs) uh, items that is on our website right now at FreightWaves.com. This one right here, House Passes Bill Expanding Powers of Maritime Regulators. Now, this is the big guy. Uh, This is... Obviously, supply chain and congestion has become a lead story or a lead topic for a lot of political uh, leaders and influence and people trying to get some attention out there. It is a legitimate problem. Um, and what have they done? But now we've got a bill that just passed the House. Uh by overwhelming (laughs) like overwhelmingly past the house now this scares me anthony i'm going to go ahead and throw it out there this this makes me nervous even though i think intentions are good uh but this makes me nervous and i haven't read this uh, probably in enough detail to really have a fully formed opinion yet but i think uh this is definitely one that we're going to have to monitor and watch because this gives the federal maritime commission the power to impose minimum requirements on ocean carrier service contracts and shifts the burden of proof and regulatory proceedings from shippers to the container lines. Um, now that, you know, doesn't really say a lot uh, in that sentence. It's kind of open-ended, but essentially the, it gets a little bit more specific here. John Gallagher writes this article, of course, check this out and read it in detail on, our, on the website. But basically mandating that ocean carriers cannot decline export cargo if the containers can be loaded safely and within a reasonable time. Of course, there's a caveat there. Gives a little bit of an out. But one of the big stories this year is that a lot of these maritime uh, carriers have bypassed picking up exports to go get the higher paying import freight, you know, from the United States perspective over there in Asia, because you could get so much more money. You don't want to waste time picking up those empties or the containers full of dairy and milk. They actually used an example of how it cost the dairy industry like a billion dollars this year by just bypassing exports.
1: So Zach, when you see stories like these, are you seeing some unintended consequences that might kind of come out from these types of situations? So that's that's what I'm worried about. Anytime we
0: have more regulation, even though I think there is, there is a place for it, and yeah. I read a great article in The Economist uh, not too long ago that says we need to identify what government does well and what it doesn't. <laughs> And there's certain aspects, you can't just blanket and say, regulations don't need to exist. Anarchy, (laughs) you know, that's not what we need to say, but we need to identify where government does need to maybe put in some boundaries. And I think a lot of it like sports, you know, we have rules in place, not necessarily to be too punitive, just to punish people for punishing (laughs) sake, uh, but to improve the flow of the game, the competition levels, to make sure that everything works. It's entertaining, number one, uh, but in terms of the economy it needs to be something that adds value you know and we need to make sure that we're focusing that value and the monies and generating that value for the greater good you know not to sound too altruistic here but you know it needs to generate some positive outcomes and when you have a lot of waste and things like we've seen in the supply chain this year i'm not i'm not saying that we shouldn't have you know regulations in it but it always makes me nervous when people don't necessarily understand the space and the functionality and the nuance of it, start making rules for people that do. <laughs> yeah, And that's where I'm uh, coming up here. And the World Shipping Council, of course, re- uh, has a rebuttal here and says, uh, they represent 90% of the global container capacity, has opposed the legislation. Instead of creating a level playing field, the reforms would tilt the market in favor of shippers and commercial disputes. The WSC has dis- uh, disputed here. So it's there's another side of this story. I'm very interested to hear about it. Uh, Maybe we'll get Henry or Henry Byers or Greg Miller or somebody to kind of dive deeper into this. I'm sure we'll have articles on freightways.com. Stay tuned for that. John Gallagher, of course, wrote this one. He's our Washington correspondent. And, you know, it just, anytime the government has hands in something, I get a little bit kind of like, oh,
1: every single time for me because yeah. I start thinking about the, the unintended consequences downstream that exactly. really might kind of come to come into play so but yeah this is going to be one where I think Henry Byers would be a great person to yeah. kind of pick his brain on and just kind to of get a little bit more detail um, around this story I think we have another story or two but I mean
0: wait so- I want I want to finish with one story okay because this is a lighthearted one I like this one this is a Christmas oh. tree story because it's Christmas time let's hear it It's here, (laughs) whether you like it or not. Uh, And this is Nick Austin, wrote this article. And I just think everybody that's been in transportation should absolutely go out and read this. Because every year it's Christmas tree season. And anybody that's brokering freight in the Pacific Northwest knows, uh, here it comes, uh, Christmas trees. You typically want to get in there and get those trees early Mm -hmm. uh, because that's when you get all the money. uh, And they just disrupt capacity. In an area of the country that normally doesn't have that has an oversupply. Yeah. So there's no, it's just like, get me out of here. The carriers are like, get me out of here as fast as you can. Well, this time of year, uh, things change as some of these commodities start rolling in the fall. The first potatoes, apples, Talk to Kent Baker about this, customer success team, he worked up there for years, uh, has a lot of good insight there. I actually talked to him just the other day about this. And interesting tidbit here, he says that some of these farms up there are diverting away from Christmas trees and going to wreaths. And the wreaths actually bring in some of this money now. So I want to pull up a chart here uh, for the, you know, our, it it illustrates this and it's in the article. It's the spot rate from our track market dashboard here uh, at FreightWaves. And it shows the Portland to uh, Los Angeles spot rate. And you can see in that green line there, huge jump. (laughs) I mean, it's almost obvious. Here it is, Christmas tree season, right there, right before Thanksgiving, huge jump. And it remains elevated to this day because this is a daily uh, report that we get. Um, This typically does fall off, though, the closer we get to to Christmas. But he writes this article basically saying there's a shortage of Christmas trees in uh, the area because we had huge drought and the heat waves and the forest fires went rampant this year. So it's not as big of a supply this year. So Christmas trees in higher demand and they... The nor- Oregon and the Northwest up there, over one third of the uh, nation's Christmas tree supply. Mm. And I guess wreaths too. Wreaths. <laughs> so I wonder if there's like a better margin on wreaths in, in that case. Now. Yes, there are. And gotcha. that's why. Uh, because it is a processed good now. It's not just fresh anymore.
1: Gotcha. Interesting changing. Also, so before we bring on our guest of the hour for sure, a uh, huge shout out. So Patrick Murray says, busy, busy time for me. I tell my daughter I am sent as helper. I mean, that's essentially what people are doing, especially in the supply chain. And folks like Morgan Buckley, who is a commercial driver, he says that mandate doesn't sound fully thought out. And I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. But guys, thanks so much for joining in on the conversation. And without further ado, we have to introduce the man. someone that's been missed on our airwaves for some time. We are reunited at long last, Dr. Zach Rogers over at Colorado State. Thanks so much for joining us today, Zach. The boys are back. I mean, <laughs> look at it. It it feels like forever
2: since we've talked.
0: <laughs> like I. No,
2: I, I'm glad you guys finally ended my suspension. It's really nice to, <laughs> to get to get, get back out
0: here. That that suspension was definitely on Anthony's end, not on mine. No,
2: uh, no, no. It's your I, potty
0: I, mouth, Zach. It's your potty mouth. No, but Zach, it's so good to have you back. We've got a ton of stuff to talk about since we haven't talked um, in, in months now. So I think we need to kick things off though with the latest LMI because that's that's the bread and butter. That's how we'll that'll lead us into a lot of different uh, spots here. Latest LMI came out, you know, for November,
1: and but before we jump into it, oh, real quick, because it's been so long since Zach's been here, Doctor mm-hmm. Rogers, what is the LMI? Oh, like well, uh,
2: the LMI. I know Logistics people know. But... <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it's a big deal. That's what it, it is. is. No, the Logistics <laughs> Managers Index is uh, a change index that we do every uh, every month, and we look at um, how we how there's movements in transportation, warehousing, and inventory, and we really are looking at a big macro picture here. We we get um, director level above a couple hundred every month, and we say, okay, hey, transportation prices are they up? Are they down? Are they staying the same? Warehouse capacity, up, down, staying the same. Then we put together a, a change index. And any number over 50 means growth. Further over 50, greater level of growth. Further under 50 means contraction, so greater levels of contraction. And uh, this month, the LMI came in at uh, 73.4, which is a significant rate of growth. In fact, it is, um, I think, the the eighth, uh, the eighth month in a row that we've had a reading in the 70s and really anything over over 70 means significant significant growth so we really are seeing a continued expansion i think it's so interesting because you know leading up to uh the holiday shopping season there was all of these stories about oh there's not going to be turkeys for thanksgiving there's not going to be christmas trees uh for christmas or toys or whatever and really there's been a lot of things have been on shelves now of course you know um out of stock messages on on websites are up from 2019, and there's some smaller retailers that didn't have maybe the uh, you know the money to charter their own ship, like the the smaller sort of mall stores, like Aeropostal or American Eagle or or wherever else Anthony's getting his tight fitting shirts. <laughs> you know, they they didn't have the, the money that maybe say Amazon and Walmart did to bring his stuff across across the water. But generally, we do have things on shelves, and the way that happened. Is companies spent a tremendous amount of money uh, to move an unprecedented level of of volume through the supply chain, and that's really what we're seeing this month with the index.
0: I mean the 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 fact that we're still at this point, like one of the one of the things I think that surprises me a little bit uh, about this is the fact that we really aren't seeing a dramatic easing, uh, you know, in in the market. Like it's it's you know. Being this hot for this long uh, without some sort of like hiccup or something kind of falling off seems really counterintuitive to a lot of people. Now, uh, something that I think we're going to have to like watch out for. Obviously, we we talked about inflation way back in the day. Like I think it was like January when we were talking about how inflation is going to play a factor. And that's becoming an increasingly talked about topic. It looks like it's, you know, mathematically going to play a role in the coming months uh, to an extent. But, you know, a lot of your data in the Logistics Manager's Index, of course, measures this warehousing capacity situation. And even if, say, inflation does become a factor and start to kind of erode consumer demand a little bit, it still doesn't feel like we're going to see a dramatic fall, a drop-off, even
2: into, like, January, February, does it, to you? No, I, I don't think that we're going to. Because the fundamental reasons behind the inflation, which is the mismatch of capacity and consumer demand, are still going to be there even after January and February. You you see people saying, oh, well, you know, Chinese New Year's coming up uh, first week of February, and we'll clear out some of the backlog in the ports maybe, and we'll we'll get caught up. And that's people who don't understand how the supply chain totally really works, right? They're only seeing that one step in the ports, and they're not seeing everything that comes after that. You know, our warehouse capacity um, index was in the 40s uh, again this month, and it's actually contracted every single month since March 2020. Okay, so from the first, uh, you know, day of the pandemic, available warehouse capacity has been contracted. And we're trying to build warehouses, we just can't build them fast enough. Transportation capacity has contracted every month since August uh, of 2020, I believe. And so more than a year of of contraction for for transportation capacity. And, you know, we are trying to build more Class 8 trucks right now, but because of the semiconductor shortage, if you ordered a big truck today, Class 8 truck today, you're probably looking at February 2023 for delivery. And we, just because, you know, maybe some of the, there'll be some, you know, temporary slowdown of goods coming out of China, it doesn't mean that we will suddenly wake up on February 2nd uh, and we'll have all the trucks we need and all the warehouses we need. We, we just won't. And so it's going to take, I think, and, and this is what the respondents would say too, of this uh, this uh, month's index, we're gonna be into 2023, at least before we start to see real significant um, increases in capacity that can keep up with demand. Now, will consumer demand keep growing at the same rates? I don't know that it will. You know, um, people have worked through a lot of the savings that we built up during, during COVID. You know, we kind of stayed home, didn't spend money. We had the stimulus packages. And then people have worked through uh, a lot of that excess uh, excess savings. And so maybe we can see things slow down a little bit. But I still think that because of the way the economy changed, because of the shift to e-commerce, because of all the pressure we're seeing on the ports, it's not like we're going to need less trucks or or less warehouses six months from now than we do now. We're going to need more. Um, You know, e-commerce is 14% of retail in in 2020, up 3%. It was was 11% (laughs) the year before. And that was really difficult for us to deal with. By 2026, it's gonna be 25% of retail. Okay, so it, it's, we have another 9% to go in the next four years. We're not gonna really see a slowdown, because that, uh, you know, I, I don't know how transitory this the inflation will continue to be. Oh, I would exactly. say not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. One of the things that I, I really, so I love about the LMI, of course, is because it's broken down into different components, and you were just talking to some of them. One of the interesting ones, for sure, for me, that kind of jumped out was warehousing prices, and I think you spoke about this one before, and how some of those prices for the warehouses increase at an exponential rate as capacity kind of starts to decline here. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit more about this month's reading for the uh, warehousing prices um, index?
2: Yeah, so we have the highest ever rate of growth for warehouse pricing in November. It crossed over 90. For the first time ever, it's a a 90.3. And I think this is like the fifth out of the last seven times that we've set a new high rate of growth for warehousing and it's unusual for warehousing uh, prices to grow this this quickly because you know generally warehousing contracts are long you know it's the three-year contract or maybe a year contract and so you see it usually move much more slowly you know transportation is incredibly reactive transportation's up it's down it's all over the place warehousing generally has been sort of Within a range, uh, for the first four you know four and a half years we did this, it was, eh, it's not going to get higher than 75, it's not really going to get lower than 45, it's, it's pretty consistent. And now we're way up in the 90s. And it's because, it's kind of like what, what Zach was saying a minute ago, Zach won, not, this isn't a third person thing, uh, <laughs> what Zach was saying a minute ago, we've had this really long period where uh, the market's been overheated, essentially. And so now we're really starting to see uh, the the results of that come now where we have just crazy movements in price. And also, I think part of why we're seeing these movements in price is we have more inventory in the system than we've just about ever had. You know, inventories, uh, if you look at the amount of stuff coming through the ports, way higher in 2021 than it's ever been before. Yet, inventory levels aren't that high. Why is that? It's because everything's moving through uh, really, really quickly. So we have high volume plus high velocity. And that drives storage costs way up because you're constantly bringing things in, constantly bringing out and everything's really full. You know, one of the things that I think uh, drove the warehouse price up to, to 90 was, you know, we had those threats at the Port of Long Beach. Hey, you know, idle containers, we're going to start charging you. And and I think everyone who was paying attention kind of knew like, that's, that's sort of like your parents saying like, hey, I'm going to count to three. <laughs> and when I get there, then you're going to be in trouble. And, and they ended up not really having to do the, uh, do the accessorial fees, they keep pushing them back and pushing them back. But the threat of that, the threat that, hey, we can't just leave containers sitting on chassis anymore, led to companies like renting out plots of land in Southern California and just putting containers all over the place. And so we have warehouses absolutely filled to the brim, which is why we end up with 90, which is, like I said, the highest number we've ever seen.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a mess out there right now for a, for a lot of reasons. So it's, I kind of want to. I kind of want to break it down a little bit further, though. We talk about the retail side of things that gets a lot of the pub right now uh, because it is retail peak season, uh, Christmas uh, shopping, and all that. But the industrial sector and the manufacturing side is kind of having its own experience, kind of separate from the retail side of things. And we saw this really brought to light uh, earlier in the year, we saw March, uh, the industrial economy really just turned it on, like, and then flipped the switch quickly. Um, Are you seeing any kind of uh, information in your data set there that kind of points us in the direction that the industrial sector is, you know, moving any differently than the retail side with like, if the retail side were to fall off for some reason, would that industrial sector really kind of fill some of those gaps in there?
2: I think so because we still, even if retail were to slow down, there would still be demand coming right behind it for that capacity. And we break um, in our reports we break down upstream versus downstream respondents. It's interesting uh, that you bring that up. So upstream would be non-consumer facing um, respondents, so manufacturers, distributors, people like that, the, the industrial side. Whereas downstream would be retailers and and people who directly interface with customers. So the warehousing capacity numbers we're statistically uh, uh, significantly different for upstream and downstream uh, in November. So for upstream, it was 48.7 for warehouse capacity, which is um, a contraction in available capacity, but 48 is pretty mild. That That's pretty close to 50. It's not a huge, huge contraction like what we saw in downstream, where it came in at a 39. So there's a nine point difference there. And it's because I think of seasonality. We have all this, inventory rushing downstream to retailers. And I think that's also sort of uh, backed up by the shift in our inventory level numbers. So in October, inventory levels were 10.3 points higher for upstream. So um, it was, you know, 60s to to 50s or whatever it was. This month in November, it's 10.9 points higher for downstream firms. And so we see sort of in real time, there was all this inventory stuck upstream, whether it was on the docks, in warehouses somewhere, distribution centers, wherever, that now in the last month is all rushed downstream just like it's supposed to. Has all rushed downstream and now on store shelves and in fulfillment centers. And the final difference we see between upstream and downstream was in, uh, was in transportation utilization this month. So transportation utilization downstream was a 68, very uh, solid rate of growth. Upstream, it was 82. And so what that tells us is all the inventory was upstream. It was stuck somewhere. And then upstream firms spent a ton of money on transportation to move it downstream to retailers who are now spending a ton of money on holding that inventory somewhere. And so we see the supply chain working the way it's supposed to work. We don't normally see it so bifurcated as we do uh, in November where there's these real differences between the industrial side and the retail side.
1: So Zach, sticking on some of those pricing talks and some of the movement here, one of the things that we were chatting about earlier on in this week was, I think we have a chart for this as well, is the aggregate logistics price. Can you dive into a little bit more on um, that chart? Because I think you said this was uh, moving at this fastest pace now more than ever.
2: That's right. Yeah, I, I keep coming on and saying that like, oh, it's crazier than ever, guys. And, and I look forward to the day where it's just like, no, no, that's boring. Um, but so, yeah, it's at 271.1 for our aggregate price chart. Now, what I mean by that is so, you know, all these metrics are zero to 100. So we just add together the inventory, warehousing, and transportation costs. So add those three together. And so now it becomes a scale of uh, zero to 300. So it was at 271. In November, which is uh, pretty far in a way, the the highest that that chart's ever been, and you know, really anything over two hundred and fifty would be significant uh, significant rates of growth. And and I have it right here; it's been over two hundred and fifty since March. So March it we we hit two fifty two, and we haven't looked back since then. And so this goes back to what we were saying earlier, where the reason that the disruptions haven't been as bad as everyone was worried about, you know, everyone saw a hundred ships. Sitting off the port of LA and and you know, now some of those ships are hiding further away. But everyone <laughs> saw those ships sitting off the port of LA and thought, oh my gosh, it's it's the apocalypse. And we we have we stuff has been on shelves. We've been able to buy stuff. And it's because it's because those costs have gotten so high. I mean, that that's why, right? We're paying a ton of money in freight, a ton of money to store stuff, extra charges all over. Basically, this has been the year where it seems like supply chains have said. We're really going to prioritize service over costs, which traditionally is not the way that that supply chains work. You know, in, in the class you teach, economies of scale and um, economies of distance, and put as much stuff on a truck, make it as heavy as you can, drive it far, make everything cheap. You know, the first warehouse I worked in was out in the middle of the desert. It was in the middle. Of, it wasn't next day delivery to anybody except maybe some horses. And now you you know, all the warehouses are right next door to, you know, malls and stuff like that. And so I think this has really been, especially what we're seeing right now, I don't know if it's a tipping point. I, I don't know if if we'll look back at 2020 and 21 and say, hey, that's that's when when supply chains shifted to more of a service and and high cost model. I think there's a chance that we will. But certainly the fact that we're seeing the highest aggregate cost that we've ever had before in November at 271 suggests that. Something is happening.
0: Do you have any data around that? Like saying, I I remember back in the day, it used to be something like crazy, like four to five percent of the total cost of a good was in transportation. Has that? Has there been any new data on that, saying that that's expanded dramatically, or or does it stay relatively the same in terms of proportion?
2: You know, I, I think it has. It has probably gone up a little bit. You know, but we have inflation at the same time you right. And so, partly, you know, the inflation exists to cover the additional transportation costs. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think it would be hard to disentangle exactly uh, where it is. I will say, though, I mean, if you look at like the shipping container side, the international shipping container side, you know, normally a container going across the water should be $1,500. Right now, it's probably closer to $15,000. Right. The value of the goods inside the shipping container isn't that different, really. You know, if it's $100,000 of stuff in the shipping container, it's gone from 1.5% is the sea freight to 15% is the sea freight. And you can bump prices up to some level. But I think, you know, if we're seeing transportation rates double, it's not like prices can, can double along with it. So I would say that yes, transportation price has probably gone up as a percentage of some goods, not not of everything, but of some goods certainly. But it's been counteracted a little bit by inflation. Um overall though, I, I would say yes, it's probably a little bit higher, but not as high as you might think because, you know,
1: inflation. Right. So, Zach, another subcomponent that I love that you put out in the LMI report, of course, is the future expectations. Were there any surprises that you saw in this latest report around future expectations from the survey?
2: You know what was interesting is um it was a little less optimistic than it was uh last month. <laughs> so last month, uh you know, there was, there was some, uh, I think, more optimism around warehouse capacity. Uh, it was a, a 60 was our projection for 12 months from now, which would be a significant rate of growth. This month, it was 52. And transportation, pri- or transportation capacity was uh, 58. And those are both very moderate levels of growth. And they're kind of the levels of growth that we would expect in a normal time. And, and you know, 52 and 58 wouldn't be bad if we were starting from a steady state. You know, if we were starting from capacity and demand are are somewhat level, then growing in the mid 50s, high 50s would be fine. That's probably where we want to see supply chains grow. So we're not spending crazy money all the time. The problem is the game is not zero, zero, right? We're not starting with capacity and demand even, Uh, you know, (laughs) demand is up by three touchdowns. And so we need capacity to grow more quickly. Because that's not happening, because it's growing at, you know, it's sort of normal mid-50s pace, we see all of the price metrics up in the mid uh, and low 80s. And so 12 months from now, you know, people are saying, well, will inflation slow down? Will the supply chain issues be over? It's all still going to be in the 80s, according to our respondents. And our respondents have been right 90% of the time since we've been doing this. And if you throw out March of 2020, they've been right like 95% of the time um uh and so i don't think that we're going to see real significant cost decrease uh in the next 12 months now what i will say is that um predictions for capacity have now been positive for like 4 months in a row that tells me that we've probably hit the bottom in terms of the mismatch so in terms of that real delta between capacity and demand we've probably hit the bottom of it and now we're on our way back up uh but it's going to be a slow u-shaped recovery i think in terms of capacity for for supply chains and supply chains getting back to normal i remember like a year ago we were talking about the v-shape versus the w-shape or the k-shape if some went up some went down um and and i think it's it's probably going to be a u-shape uh for for logistics
0: yeah I, i remember the k shaped recovery thing where everybody was saying well one's going down one's going up the service industry of course being the down uh, and, the, and the good side being the one that's going up. So, the goods and the inventory level. So, you're, you're the, you know, I'm curious to know where, like, we had a lot of reports of shippers over ordering, uh, for instance, for a lot of, you know, since they know that capacity is tight and it's kind of like human nature, you know, you see some scarce uh, resources, you tend to try to make sure that you hedge your bet by getting a little bit more than you need. Do you think that there is going to be some level of hangover uh, at some point on the good side of the economy with some excess inventories? And how do you see that kind of, you know, if, if there is one, do you think that that plays out in 2022 in any extent?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, you know, I'm playing the beer game with my MBA class tomorrow, actually. So so they, they're going to learn all about this and what happens when you order too much inventory. Um, last year, I think we had one hundred and ten billion dollars of consumer returns after the holiday season, okay? And this November and December, um, consumer spending is probably gonna be up about 10 to 10.5%. So you would think, well, if we had $110 billion of returns last year and we're gonna be up another 10%, then it mu- it's not unreasonable to think we might have $120 billion uh, in returns. And then on top of that, we have all of the overstocks. You know, one of the things we track every year is the secondary market inventory. So how much returned and overstocked inventory is going through the economy? And in the US in 2020, it was um, $643 billion, which is 3.1% of GDP, okay? And so I would think that, you know, that was with lower levels of inventory. And now that inventory is higher, now that retail sales is up higher, I wouldn't be surprised if we get close to $700 billion of overstocked and, and returned inventory in, in 2021 and, and 2022. So yes, my, my answer is, I, I think, you know, but it, it was the lesser of two evils. You get penalized more for out of stocks than you do for overstocks generally. You know, if you keep going to a store and three times in a row, they don't have what you need. You probably don't go to that store anymore. You lose that customer, not just those three sales, but the lifetime of the customer. So if you can, all right, well, we'll we'll, we'll miss uh, on that will make sure that we always have what they, they what customers need and then you know if we have too much stuff we have too much stuff they used to in the past you know it's not penny spread if yeah ask most uh most reasons, But that choice was the lesser of two evils
1: Zach, i think we were having a little bit of choppiness but from what I can summarize, I think what we're hearing is that, of course, you want the lesser of two evils. And if you go to a store, and you see it's out of stock multiple times, you might lose that customer. So the lesser of two evils is for sure, maybe over ordering for what you might need. And then uh, potentially, you can retain that customer versus losing them out of your ecosystem altogether. Um, But I don't know if we still have uh, Dr. Rogers here. But if not, he, I'm just so happy that he graced us with his presence. We got a lot of good conversations. Is, is my
2: suspension back on? Am I kicked <laughs> off the show again? Oh, he's
1: back. All right, <laughs> perfect, 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 perfect. We're back, we're back. <laughs> no,
0: we lost you a little bit there, uh, Dr. Z. We, uh, You know, Anthony kind of summed it up okay. perfectly. Uh, over-ordering, uh, you want to have more inventory than not
2: enough, yeah, correct? Yeah, oh, that sounded right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so how does, how does that work, right. though? That's like, right. in terms of, you know... When you are sitting there and and prices, transportation prices and warehouse inventory prices have gotten so high, is there going to be a point where we start to see that shift back a little bit more to the other direction where we're saying, okay, yeah, you want to make sure that you have the inventory, but is there a chance that that kind of reverses as prices for transportation and warehouse become too high? Or is that still a marginal cost if we still have him? Can't hear him. Oh, there we go.
2: Extreme because we're in a really extreme time, uh, but I think it will stabilize a little bit. It, I think it will lean more towards over inventory. That I, I think it'll lean more towards having too much inventory than it has in the past, uh, and we'll probably find a noose having too much than than having not enough. But it, it will stabilize. It's it can't just go up like this forever because at the end of the day, um, I mean, customer service is great, but you still also have to be able to make.
1: Wise words and deeds, Dr. Zach Rogers. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate your insights. And um, I don't know if you've seen the LinkedIn, but you are sparking a lot of really good conversations. So we appreciate you being on right before you get back into class and teaching our future leaders of the supply chain. All
0: right. Well, yeah. So, I mean, there you have it. (laughs) Uh, You know, a little bit, a little bit of choppiness there on the, on the feed, but I think the main points were well said. I mean, what I think a lot of the concerns that I've been hearing, Anthony, over the next few months is, obviously we talk about inflation. Yeah. <laughs> we think that, cons- I mean, the consumer has really driven most of what we saw last year. There are huge changes there, and that pushed all that upstream activity that we're just now really starting to get into, right? I mean, in terms of industrial uh, manufacturing and some of these things that, you know, this nearshoring, you know, building out facilities in the United States or in different places, Uh, a lot of change going on still in the United States, in the economy in general. So even if consumer demand kind of wanes a little bit, there's still enough pent up action here. Uh, And then we're going to have all these goods. (laughs) Yeah. You know, we're going to have a lot of stuff that's out of balance. Uh, So it's not like warehouses are going to dry up and be empty all of a sudden and, you know, trucks are going to not have anything to move. Right.
1: That's right. I mean, and I think you really hit on a lot of good points that, can, that we can kind of draw into a little bit here with some of the short time that we have left. But talking about the pricing component, looking at some of those goods that are going to be maybe in a a bullwhip effect, a whiplash, in a sense, when we're looking at the latter half of 2022, there's going to be some discounted prices for sure, right. and, and those are probably the discounts that we didn't see. You know, if, if you've been holiday shopping. Um, throughout, you know, since Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever you may have been doing, those deals were started much earlier, Right. but those shippers, those retailers, those outlets were not as incentivized to mark down those prices. You're just happy that they have it. And so looking at that, I can only imagine that moving forward into 2022, for sure, there's going to be a lot more high quality goods on the secondhand market mm-hmm. um, and that there's going to be a lot more potential deals and discounted goods of a lot of outlets just trying to get rid of stuff because now things that were sitting uh, at the ports or, you know, waiting to really kind of ship out, it's it's four months behind. And, you know, now we got to move into the next thing if it's not seasonal, you know? And so I can only imagine that part of the year really being, a, you know, a shopper's paradise. I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon really kind of jumped into the game in 2022 and really, you know, put their foot on on the on the gas and said, all right, We're about to really hit the market with a lot of goods right now um, at a pretty significant discount and they can take a hit that maybe other outlets can't so of course that might continue to push some consumer momentum after we start to see some downward movement in demand because inflationary pressures and maybe some of those savings rates start to come down a little bit
0: yeah I, i think that's a that's a fantastic point i mean when we're talking about like right now prices are extremely high uh, and it's going to take a minute for things to kind of normalize and regulate. A good strategy, especially if you're a shipper, is to try to take advantage of maybe some lulls in the activity. Yeah. Uh, you know, Amazon shows consistently that they are willing to spend a lot of money up front to make sure that they have the inventory that they need because they know if the consumer can't get their good online, they're not. you're not making that sale. Like right. Right? So they need to have inventory available all the time. And I wish Dr. Rogers, we're still here to kind of comment on that because he worked at Amazon for a period of time. And uh, I I also wanted to kind of break down the fulfillment versus distribution network, uh, the transition that we're starting to see. I mean, he just, he had a mind-blowing stat, (laughs) you know, e-commerce growing uh, another 9% from 16 to 25% uh, over the next, you know, what is it, 2021 still? (laughs) Over the next four years. And we just took a 3% bump and, and a lot of the activity that we just saw in the, uni- in the economy was an acceleration of what we were already kind of experiencing at a slower pace. This traditional, this move from traditional brick and mortar storefront to the e-commerce sector. And I think linking those two is actually going to become even more uh, popular here in the coming years because now that everybody's been in their house so long, they they they're gonna want to hold on to a little bit more of that going to a store, seeing some goods type thing. Now that they've had, you know, they've been forced to kind of sit in their houses and stare at it on a computer screen. So I, I think, you know, here in the near term for sure, we're watching for shippers to kind of show us that they're. Still active, still kind of adjusting things like that. We're going to be watching our outbound tender volume <laughs> index yeah. uh, here in January for sure. Uh, you're going to be watching the consumer demand, um, consumer confidence. We don't know. They they say things they don't mean all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, you know, as you point out with their actions, they're still willing to quit their jobs even though they don't have a lot of confidence. And maybe yeah. that I don't I don't know if that really necessarily proves out that they're acting rationally uh, but they're feeling a certain way and maybe the jobs market too is going to have an influence here as we move in because everybody's e- it, you forget
1: we have short memories yeah.
0: we forget how hard it was to get a job in 2009 it wasn't that long ago
1: yeah <laughs> and i was so incredibly happy that it I wasn't job hunting during that time but it was almost like coming up as an economist during that time frame was just like a case study um, like none other right. in, in the period in, t- in history but um We're looking at, I think you hit the nail right on the head of consumers really wanting a little bit of both. I mean, even when we're looking at, uh, you know, jobs right now, Mm -hmm. a lot of places, Freightways, some parts of it are, you know, hybrid model. It's like, you know, in office X percent of the time and, you know, working remote another percent of the time for some people. Some people are 100 percent remote. And so there is going to be, I think, essentially that same uh, model built out for sure for retailers as well. And the other big thing I think that really kind of gets brought up when we're looking at the supply chain issues, I think one that kind of gets pushed for it from time to time is, of course, that that notion of Mm nearshoring or reshoring in a sense. And so I think, of course, there are some issues around that just because we talk about all the time the infrastructure that China has built out to really facilitate the levels of manufacturing right now. And even if we can, because we can make some manufacturing space and, you know, but the cost for that to happen tremendous. versus, you know, the benefit might not be there. So for example, I mean, I am not a good cook by any means. So during holidays, Here we go. when I go visit, I can help make things, but it's gonna take way too long. It might taste okay, but it's just gonna be like, hey, dinner was supposed to be at seven. Mm-hmm. Guys, it's gonna look more like 2 a.m. potentially. I am better going to the store and getting whatever we might need. That's my core competency. See, and this is where you get
0: into the discussion of consistency Mm
1: -hmm.
0: versus how adaptable do you want to be? Yeah. And and supply chains were built for consistency, not adaptability in most cases. And when you're looking at, you know, people trying to decide to build a factory in the United States or Mexico or Canada or wherever it is uh, versus just kind of leaning on existing infrastructure, you know and and a lot of the sentiment that i get right now from our data is that shippers are leaning back on that traditional method because they look at their budgets and go Why, wait we're not going to build a factory like we're getting to the you know we're we're pretty deep into this cycle as it is and not a lot of people know how long it's going to persist in this manner so if you really look at some of the headlines and things like that when these people are deciding to build factories we're we're a year and a half in to this cycle already, and Too you're late. just now getting to the point where you're committing to building. Because think about last year. At the end of the year, you're a transportation provider, you're thinking, I've got until December, January to make my money, and then things are probably gonna go back, COVID's gonna go away, et cetera. So you put off all those plans for another year, and then what happens? This year happens. <laughs> you yeah. know, Texas freezes and throws everything into chaos. So takes a long time to make that decision. Then after you make the decision and commitment, it takes another long period of time. So we haven't seen anything really substantial uh, change just yet in terms of supply chain infrastructures.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a big part um, when we're looking at, for sure, in investments in upstream as well mm-hmm. because I always talk about, you know I love it, the flatbed outbound tender rejection index. We're looking at upstream movements, especially with industrial machinery. like these businesses, mm-hmm. they're led by smart people most of the right. time. And when they're making these capital goods expenditures, they're ma- using a lot of money on these capital goods expenditures with the expectation that there's going to be a return on them. And so right. when we're seeing a lot of that spending upstream start to slow down, that's a canary in the coal mine. Like, hey, they're not expecting as much right. return on a lot of these goods. Well, so, it's just like
0: Dr. Rogers just said, his, his, uh, the expectations and the LMI this uh, this go around still pretty, like it's, it's showing positive in terms of growth and capacity and things like that, but it's not showing like dramatic change. We're talking about a very moderated, and I'm the numbers on his accuracy for that prediction. Yeah. 95%. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that was including 2020. Yeah. Uh, and
0: so and the that's, COVID.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, so that's incredibly impressive to really, and so really take that into account when you go to the dash LMI.com, check out the report. It's mm-hmm. a lot of great stuff there. Also, if you're a so, uh, Sonar user, you can dive into the um, LMI data in there as well, so be sure to check that out. It is time, Zach. Uh, here's, it's cancel, Zach. I don't even know why we
0: call it debate no Debate It's
1: no longer a debate. I mean, it is a debate inomics, but I mean, it's, it's... it's, it's, it's me asking you <laughs> questions here. This one, I, I think we might need a little bit more time for you for you to draw some of this stuff out. Oh. This one comes from a very specialized A.B. Cannon. He says, we have our four teams. Who's going to the national championship? oh don't
0: it this this kills me i can't
1: (laughs) do i pick with what i really
0: want or do i you know what i'm gonna do that i'm gonna say let's uh put uh oh man i don't know i can't (laughs) i can't i can't my the rational part of my brain and the emotional part are fighting each other just anybody but alabama Anybody but... <laughs> Anybody but Alabama.
1: I'm going to go ahead. <laughs> okay. I'm All right. We, um, we have another one from... Cincinnati wins. <laughs> you think so? Yeah. Okay. Go, go hip-
0: Bearcats. Hey.
1: <laughs> we have another one from our very own Frazier Good Game. What is UT ceiling for wins next year? UT ceiling for wins? Uh,
0: there's no ceiling. They're going to win a national championship. 13. This is it. We had our warm-up here. Dude, we won seven games without uh, without anybody to play, 71
1: scholarships. So you know when there is just like one wild take that just kind of erases everything that you've <laughs> ever said before? That may have been it, but folks, this has been Freightonomics. I am Anthony Smith, and here at Freight Waves, joined by the one and only, the Sultan of Sonar, Zach Strickland, Director of Freight Market Intelligence, and we had Dr. Zach Rogers here as well. Thank you so much for tuning in for this amazing episode, and thank you for the great conversation in the LinkedIn tab. And we'll see you next Thursday, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Drink more water and go Bearcats, I guess. Go Aggies, New Mexico <laughs> State, all day, every day.